Hey there, true believers, and welcome to Simply Devotion, the podcast that takes complex theological ideas and breaks them down into points of simply understanding. I am your host, Pastor Vinny. And I'm the podcaster that likes to remind you, when life throws a monkey wrench at your head, Jesus is still the logo, the logic, the reason, the word that builds your faith all the way back to the kingdom of God. True Believer, and welcome back to another episode of Simply Devotion with Pastor Vinny from simplyvinny.com. Now, we are actually on episode 21. Can you believe that we have consistently put out a podcast every week for 21 weeks? This blows my mind. And this is just been season one of my podcast. Now, I will have today's podcast, and then I'll have one final podcast in this season, and then there will be a wrap-up episode that um, will tie up the season and tell you about my plans for next season. Then there'll be a little break, and then we will be back with Season 2 of Simply Devotion, the podcast where we like to explore deeper theological reasons for our allegiance, our faith, and our devotion to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, what we've been working on for the last sort of end portion of this season has been looking at the prophetic words of Jesus about his soon return. And we kind of got in depth with looking at Matthew 24, Luke 21, and Mark 13, and we began last week looking at Matthew 25. All of these make up what is called the Sermon on the Mount of Olives, or sometimes some pastors may call it the Sermon of Signs, the Signs of the Times you sometimes hear. But basically, it is Jesus explaining his eschatology. Now, that is a new word that we learned together here this season, and that is the eschatology of Jesus. Eschatology just means the study of last events. So what we have been focusing in on is what Jesus says prophetically about the end of the world and the time in the signs right before 
he returns. And so when we went through Mark 13 and Luke 21 and Matthew 24, we were literally going through those signs, you know, false Christ, false teachers, pestilence, earthquakes, wars, rumors of wars, the love of many growing cold, you know, all those signs. But last week, we entered into new territory. We entered into looking at the three parables of Matthew 25, which are sort of the appeal stories of Jesus and his sermon. The first one was the midnight cry, sometimes called the ten virgins. There was a cry that went out at midnight. If you have not had an opportunity to listen to that podcast, you can find it on any one of your favorite podcasts. If you're there checking it out, go ahead, leave a review if the platform allows you to do that or share it with a friend. But episode 20 is the beginning of Matthew 25. And we studied in detail the midnight cry. And what we said was, the midnight cry comes at the darkest time to warn the church to wake up. Jesus is coming again. And now we're going to look at the second parable in Matthew 25. Now, the second parable is not about 10 virgins. It is about three stewards of property that work for a master who is going to distribute his wealth amongst them. Now, you can turn in your Bible to Matthew 25 so you don't miss a thing we talk about. Or if you're listening, I will read the text for you. But we're going to get into sort of like the history. We're going to get sort of into some exegetical points, like some some details in the text that we sometimes don't know about or make assumptions about. We're going to explain the economics behind this parable because this is actually an economic parable, believe it or not. Because remember, all three of these parables in Matthew 25 are about how does the church live in the time of the signs. In fact, the time of the signs were what we studied in Mark 13, Luke 21, and Matthew 24. And now Matthew 25 continues where Matthew 24 left off, and it tells the Christian church how to live in the time of the signs that was in chapter 24. And so, so far from the first parable, we learned to be ready for the midnight cry, to have both our lamps, our word, and to have an extra jar of oil, the Holy Spirit, spiritual growth, spiritual progress, spiritual faith, um, even an attitude of gratitude and praise and an engagement in an active, not just intellectual religion. 
when the midnight cry goes out and the bridegroom comes to collect his bride. Now into the second parable. It has to do with the distribution of wealth in an interesting way. Maybe not the way you might think. Let's get into it. So this parable begins around verse 14 in uh, Matthew 25. And it's often called the parable of the talents. Now, this is a very confusing term. And we need to take some time at the beginning of this teaching to stop and to break that down. Because the word talent has implications for the English listener. So, honestly, I think the translators of this particular story would be better used to use a different terminology in this parable than talent. You know, and the NIV does, and a few other ones, uh, other translations will as well change the word. Because in English, the word talent means like gift or ability. Um, It can mean measurement of weight, but in English, if we use the word talent to mean measurement of weight, we are actually talking about, you know, measurements of weight in antiquity, meaning the ancient times, not anything modern or known in common vernacular, okay? So the talent, though, that is in this parable that Jesus is telling is not a gift. It's not a special blessing. It's not a special ability. It's a measurement of weight. Now, Because the master gives out a certain amount of talents to one person, a different amount to a second person, and yet a different amount to um, a third person. And then he asks them, what did they do with their talents? Christians have read an incorrect understanding into this parable so many times. And I've even had to sit through some unfortunate fortunate sermons where the passage was preached as if these talents were spiritual gifts. So if you have ever heard a sermon suggesting that these talents were spiritual gifts and that the people in this parable were to take their spiritual gifts and invest their spiritual gifts into the kingdom of God to, you know, get more spiritual gifts... I would just invite you at this moment to close your eyes, quietly pray, and have that deleted from your mind. Like, seriously. I'm joking, but I'm not joking. Like, that's not what this parable means, and that's not what that word means. The talent being used in the parable of the talents, or the parable of the money bags, and we'll talk about that in a minute, why I might say that, or the parable of, like... The servant's wealth, the investor, the, the investment broker. I mean, I mean, I don't know what we could call this parable, but 
We should not call it the parable of the talents because of this confusion. It is not a talent. It's not a gifting. It's not a spiritual gift. It's not an ability. It's a measurement of weight. Now, hold on. We will help you work through this. A talent was an ancient unit of measuring, you know, both in Greece, Rome, and in general, the the Middle East. In, in, in the weight of a talent was basically the weight of the equivalency of 75 pounds from what I understand. But the weight was not like just like any like weight of whatever, like not the weight of a person, not the weight of a, you know, um, produce. It was the weight of of coins, a certain amount or weight of coins or gold, depending upon which region of the Middle Eastern area we might be talking about. My understanding is the um, weight of a talent was the equivalent of the weight of one year's wages in Palestine at the time that Jesus was standing there and giving this parable. So at this point, we want to change the way we might historically see this parable here in Matthew 25 from spiritual gifts or spiritual blessings or spiritual abilities and actually see it for what it is. It's about finances. Now, remember the Three parables of Matthew 25 are given to us to understand how we should live as we are waiting for the world to come to an end. And, you know, the first one was how we should live and, and um, you know, wait for the midnight cry and endure through the darkest part of the midnight and wait and keep our batteries charged up with the Holy Spirit and uh, the Word of God, the lamp. But this one is actually about money. And, you know, money is something churches, some churches talk about too much, and then other churches are afraid or embarrassed to talk about it. But, you know, Evidently, Jesus thinks that we should think a little bit maybe about finances at the end of the world. And so I'm going to pick this parable up here in Matthew 25, verse 14. He begins with the word again, at least in the translation I am reading, which is the NIV. He begins with the word again. And why again? Because he's tying this parable to the meaning of the first parable. The first parable is about don't lose your faith in the darkest part of the night. Hold on, the bridegroom is coming. And again, I'm going to tell you something new is what he's saying. It will be like what will be like the time that you're waiting for the master to come will be like a man who was going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted his wealth To them, verse 15, to one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went 
on his journey. Pausing in verse 15 here for a minute. Notice that he's not giving them talents like you may remember from your King James or your whatever, whatever other translation. I mean, there are other translations who translate it differently, but rarely does it get translated right. It's a monetary amount of money. We know from our research here that it's about a year's wage. So so the one who's getting five bags of gold is like getting five years of wages. And the one who's getting two bags of gold is getting two years of wages. And the one who's getting one bag of gold is getting one year of wages. And, you know, the reason the NIV here is using bags of gold is because that's what a talent was. It was a weight. And what was it a weight of? Normally, a talent was about 75 pounds of gold in the ancient Mediterranean world, particularly in Palestine. So we're estimating that exact number, of course, but it would have literally been a bag of gold. That's the point. Now, the idea of ability is attached here, but not like a spiritual gifting. It's not like the master who's going on this journey left them with spiritual gifts. That's not the way the word ability is used in Matthew 25, verse 15. It is actually used as a metric as to why they were given the gold. Do you see? So it's not that they have special gifts or special abilities that they're supposed to invest. It's that the master determined basically on skill level or, I don't know, responsibility, it will appear later on as we keep reading, um, as to why he gave each one so much. Um, to one, he gave five bags of gold. To another, two. And to another, one bag of gold, according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. Verse 16. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work to gain five more bags of gold. Verse 17. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. We are kind of seeing a pattern here, right, folks? Keep with me and keep with your Bible. We're going to go into verse 18. But the man who had received one bag went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Okay, so so far, what do we got? We got, you know, one guy gets five bags of gold. The other guy gets two bags of gold. The other guy gets one bag of gold. The guy with five goes and he invest in whatever way his five bags of gold and earns back five more. That would give him ten, right? And the one who had two bags of gold takes it and invests it and gets two more bags of gold. And so, like, um, he's got now four bags of gold, right? But the man who had received one bag of gold went off and he dug a hole. He didn't invest it. He dug a hole in the ground and stuck it in the ground and he hid his master's money. Whew, that's like, you know, hmm, 
And so the other two invested, but this guy dug a hole and buried his money. You know, what's up with that? Well, we're going to talk about the ancient banking system here in a minute, but we can remember from other parables of Jesus that it was common for people to have buried their money in the ancient world as a, you know, an anti-theft device, right? So you could know where you buried your money. You could remember the spot, you know, is it by the, the third olive tree or the fourth olive tree, right? You you can make a map, you know, this is where the idea of treasure maps come from, right? You, you, you can remember, and so then you would bury your money, but then nobody else could find your money, and your money was, like, in a secure place for the most part, because, like, Who's going to go around and, like, dig up a bunch of, you know, holes in the ground just to see if there's money down there? Now, Jesus did tell uh, a different parable of a man who found hidden treasure. And that parable actually is also told in the uh, book of Matthew. So, you know, Matthew 13, I believe we can find that parable. But that man accidentally found money buried on a property and then sold all he had to get that property. You can read that parable in your own time, okay? But normally, all I'm saying is that if you dig a hole in the ground, you don't tell anybody where it is, and you cover it over and you let the grass or the flowers or whatever grow over it, you know, it's going to be pretty hard to find that money. I mean, now we would get a metal detector, but back then you couldn't do such a thing, right? So on one level, you know, even though many of us have read this parable and know where this is going, but let's suspend that idea for a moment, and maybe it's new to you. I don't know. Here's the thing. It's a pretty secure way in the ancient world to save your money. Now, were there banks? Hang on, we'll get to if there were banks. Or what kind of banks may have been there in the ancient world. But at this point, what I am trying to say to you and what I'm trying to teach is this third guy with the one bag of gold does it differently than the first guy with the five bags of gold and the second guy with the two bags of gold. But is he being irresponsible? I mean, I know that's what we want to rush to. But, you know, he is keeping his master's money secure, right? Um... Let's continue. Verse 19, Matthew 25, verse 19. After a long time, the master of those servants returned to settle his accounts with them. Remember, he went on a journey. Now he's returning back from the journey. He wants to get his money back, right? Or what's left of their money or what they've made with this money. Verse 20, the man who had received five bags of gold brought forth five more bags of gold. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five bags more. Verse 21, the master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of 
many things come and share into your master's happiness. Or, as it's often said in the classic King James, which in my mind, when I hear this parable, my mind just snaps back there because I grew up or came to faith listening to that translation. Uh, It says, now thou enter into thy master's joy, right? Like, it's like this big sort of pronouncement happening, right? It's like... The master is, like, super impressed with this guy. Like, I gave you five years' worth of salary, and you didn't know how long I was going to go away. And and you didn't take a little bit out for your own needs. You, 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 you didn't take a little bit and do this, and you didn't do that. But somehow what you did is you took the five years of salary that— you know, I gave you and the five years of wages that I gave you and and you found a way, you know, I didn't give you an investment plan. You 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 went out and you found your own investment plan according to your own ability and you invested it and you come back and you gave me twice what I gave you. Oh. A guy like you, I can really use in my kingdom, is basically what the master is saying. A guy like you, I want to keep around. Come and enter into the joy of your Lord. Or come enter into your master's happiness. Then in verse 22, the man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See that I have gained for you two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. So I will put you in charge of many things. Come and enter into and share your master's happiness or enter into your master's joy, as it says in other translations. So he got the same reward as the man with five bags. And we need to notice why, okay? So he got the same reward. Because he did the same thing. He didn't get the same reward because he got the same results. No, the other guy has 10 bags of gold and he has four bags of gold. It's not about how much you produce for the master. It's about how faithful you are. How trusting you are. Now, here's where we want to hold on. This is where we're going to go someplace new. Well, it's not new. It's always been in the text. But rarely will you hear it be taught this way. They were both willing to take a risk. With what had been entrusted to them. That is highly significant. We will be coming back to that. Then the man who had received one bag of gold, verse 24, came. Master, he said, I knew 
You were a hard man. That you were harvesting where you had not sown. and Gathering where you have not scattered seed. Verse 25. So I was afraid and I went out and I hid your gold in the ground. See. Here's what belongs to you. This is different, right? You know, here we were talking about, you know, like hiding money in the ground was like a really safe security feature for money in, in the ancient world. And it absolutely was. And I'm not saying, you know, he wasn't digging it in the ground to hide it, to keep it safe. It sounds like this guy's problem is that he plays it safe. Uh, you know, he, he he knows his master is a hard man. He knows his master is an unfair man. He knows that his master is basically, he's saying his master's a monster. Come on. That's basically what he's saying, right? Like, you know, I knew you were a hard man harvesting where you had not sown and gathering where you had not scattered seed. So I was afraid. I was terrified. I was afraid. And I went out and I hid your gold in the ground. I found a secure place. I invested your money in a place that wouldn't get any returns, but I wouldn't lose any. I played it safe because I don't trust you. I played it safe because I think that you are out to get me. I played it safe because I don't think you're what you claim to be. I played it safe because, you know, you can't punish me if I give you back what you gave me. Or so he thinks. Here it is. Take what you belong. As if that's all he owes his master. The big difference here that we want to see from these three people is attitude. Now, hang on. Remember, this episode of this podcast is about eschatology. This is the three parables that are the three appeal stories of Jesus from his sign of the Times Sermon on the Mount of Olives. These stories are supposed to draw us in into how we live in the end time. Now, what we are seeing is that there are two servants who are not just faithful. Faithful is a rather simplistic way of looking at it. It's not that they're faithful and they invest. The, the, the master, the, the man who went on a journey, whatever you want to call him, he, he never told them to do anything with the money. To be faithful, they would have had to have done what they were told. I, I just want to point out to you, exegetically from this pay, parable, <laughs> they were not told to do anything with the money. Just like, you know, I'm going on a journey, here's some money, hold on to it, you know? But two of them did, and... One of them didn't. And the one that didn't told you why he didn't because he doesn't trust the integrity of his master. 
He believes his master is a monster. He believes his master is like just looking for him to lose some money so he can punish him. So he's like, he ain't getting me, man. I buried the money where no one would find it. Here it is. Take it back. I want nothing to do with this. (sighs) This is also why I don't call this the parable of the unfaithful servant. The, the problem the problem here is attitude the problem the pro- the problem here is not just attitude the problem is attitude that is produced by the way that they see God now it is true that we don't have any description from the first servant or any description from the second servant as to how they see God but we do see their actions. And we also see a description of how the third servant sees their master. I believe the master or the man that goes on a journey is a part of a metaphoric use for God. Now, he sees the master as a monster, unfair, unreasonable, and the best he can do is hope to return to the master what he gave him so that he can't be tormented and punished. By contrast, we see, without having the words to know how they felt about their master, that they didn't see him as a monster. They did see him as a good Lord. They were willing to take a risk. They were willing to invest. They were willing to bring a return for their master because they did not harbor this evil view of their master. And you know, it's not always about faithfulness or unfaithfulness. I have seen a lot of really faithful people live a faithful life, but when a hard time comes or when a series of rapid fire hard times comes, they break. But they had been faithful for many years. And then I've seen people who've led train wrecks of life. But when push came to shove, they decided they were going to live in a way that glorified God. The problem here isn't faith. The problem here isn't ability. The problem here, you know, because literally the five and the two teaches not about ability because the two didn't have the ability of the five. And that's why the two was given less than the five. So God doesn't care that the one who only gets the one bag of gold doesn't have much ability. He's not going to judge him on his ability. He's going to judge him on being courageous. Not fearful. Trusting in 
the integrity and the character of the Lord when he returns. Now, again, this podcast is about how we are going to live as we're waiting for our Lord Jesus Christ to return. And so I have to ask you, are you prepared to live courageously? Are you prepared to take risks with all that you have? Just like the man with five bags of gold and the man with two bags of gold. Are you going to be like the man with one bag of gold? Are you going to be... I don't trust my Lord. I know he's coming back. I don't know exactly when. I don't know how long this money's got to last. I don't want anyone to clump me overhead and take it. I'm just going to bury it. I hope it's coming true for you. I hope you're beginning to see what is really actually going on in this parable. There are the first two servants who act as if their Lord has integrity and will treat them fairly if they have taken the bags of gold that they have been given and I can't even say use it faithfully because he never told them to do anything with it but they intrinsically understand that if they doubled the Lord's resources that this would be something that would be pleasing to him. Whereas the last servant believed bad things about his Lord and he put no trust in his Lord. So the equation goes like this. If we were thinking about it mathematically, Five bags of gold turned into ten bags of gold, which equaled enter into the master's happiness. Two bags of gold turned into two more bags of gold, which meant four bags of gold, which turned into enter into your master's happiness. But one bag of gold did not increase and remained only one bag of gold. Will he enter his master's happiness? Verse 26. His master replied, You wicked and lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I return, I would have received it back with interest. Matthew 26, 25, verse 26 and 27. The master is very mad at this servant. Why is he very mad at this servant? Because this servant could have at least done something with the money. Well, he did do something with the money. Let's not go down that road too fast with the master, right? Like, he he found a nice 
hole and he dug a nice hole and that probably worked up a sweat and you know he had to draw a map he had to remember where he dug the money you know he he, he took care of the money like he brought back the full you know year's wage to his master why is his master so upset his master is livid though right his master's like look look what the five guy did look what the two guy did look what you did nothing I shouldn't have to tell you to invest the resources of the kingdom into the kingdom. You are my employee. But what I find (laughs) beyond fascinating is the master never feels like he has to defend his character. Like, think about it. He doesn't. And, like, that's so hard for me because, like, It's just so hard for me because, like, sometimes, like, particularly on social media or whatever, someone you don't even know may attack you and say, like, vile things about you that are not true just because you disagreed with them about something, right? Like, I don't know if you've been there. Maybe I just, maybe it's because I'm a pastor. I don't know. People like to fight with pastors. I I don't, I don't know. But the master has no need to explain himself. And for me, that's kind of liberating. And I want to be, you know, this is a segue. This is like a little side message here. But I want to be more like the master. Don't don't you want to be more like the master? What When someone attacks your character, when someone attacks your essence, when someone blames you for their bad behavior. <laughs> I'd like to be like the master and just, what you say I am? Okay, I'm not going to argue with you, right? Like the, You don't find the master defending his reputation. <laughs> He's like, you wicked and lazy servant. If you knew that I harvest where I've not sown and gathered where I've not gathered scattered seed then like why didn't you do something like he doesn't even say you know i'm not that guy i'm not i have 10 friends and they will testify i am everyone knows that i'm not the kind of guy that would scatter and gather where i haven't gathered and scattered right like he could go down that road but he he's like if, if, if no he's just like if you think that's who i am then all the more reason you should have been doing something good You would have at least, if you really believed I was hard, if you really believed I was unfair, if you really believed I was unreasonable, you would have at least put my money in the bank so that, you know, when I returned, there would be no question that you had done something good for me, right? Now, let's talk about banks. Because, you know, why didn't he put the money in the bank? I sometimes would... Um, be unclear about this. So in the last time I taught this, someone asked me some pointed questions about banks in the world of antiquity, and I didn't know the answer. You know, basically I was teaching this presentation to a group of people, and they were like, how did banking work back then? Like, we know now that banks invest their money in stocks and bonds and so forth and so forth. How did it work back then? And so I did a little historical research, and one of the 
goals of this podcast is to help improve your theological depth, so I will just share with you what I learned. I learned that banks as we understand them now, being an institution where um, it you invest your money or you place your money in a bank and while you're not needing your money, the, your, your bank is investing um, your money someplace else and your bank keeps enough money on hand in case you need your money back while it's out being invested in other places. That's basically how the modern bank works on a very simplistic level. You know, I always think about the simplest way to think about a bank is if you grew up watching It's a Wonderful Life. And in A Wonderful Life, a great movie, great Christmas time movie. If you didn't grow up watching it, you need to go back and see it. Um, the George Bailey Savings and Loan Company, which was basically a bank, you know, George Bailey would say, I don't have your money in the bank. Your money's in Harry's house. And, and your money, Harry, is in Wilma's house. And your money isn't so... You, you know, like, that's how banks work. They don't actually have the money, like, in a hole in the ground, like this guy had. Right? They invested it out to make a profit. But banks of this nature mostly came into development development during the Middle Ages. So, not as far back as the time of Jesus. So, when the master tells this guy you should have invested your money in a bank, what is he saying? Okay, well, although the concept of lending institutions like a bank lending out money didn't exist until the Middle Ages, person-to-person loans absolutely did did right like so maybe there was no like td bank or you know uh wells fargo but there was john you know whatever you know and he was out there and he was like hey you know peter whatever you need some money to fix your boat i can lend it to you if you can give me a little bit extra back when you're you know when your your nets come in right that always went on, and that even happened in the Greco-Roman world at large. However, an important thing needs to be understood. Jewish people were forbidden by Torah, Torah being Moses, Torah being the first five books of the Bible, Torah being the cornerstone of everything Jewish, they were forbidden by Torah to lend money at a profit. You could lend money to a Jewish person, but you could not charge a Jewish person interest. You know, we find this in Exodus 22, verse 25, Leviticus 25, verse 35 through 37, and Deuteronomy 23 verse 19 and yeah it's a well-known understanding that Jews of antiquity were not allowed to lend at a profit if that's the case then who would this guy the have lent money to that he would have made a profit from right like because that's what the master's saying you should have at least put it in the bank so what kind of bank might he be using well when i looked into it 
um, the idea of a bank is an English word. Like I said, it's a middle-aged word. And verse 27, Matthew 25, 27, which talks about a bank, might better be uh, translated as lending table. Now, let me explain. There were lending tables in antiquity. There were two kinds of lending tables in antiquity. There were the lending tables of the Gentiles. The lending tables of the Gentiles. This was the practice of sometimes lending money to foreigners or Gentiles at an interest because you were not allowed to lend it to a Jew for interest. So that may have been one type of bank in antiquity. The other kind of bank in antiquity is the table of the money changers in the temple itself or around the temple itself. Since everyone needed to um, get an animal for sacrifices, um, so there had to be money changers, right? Money changers. And the way money changers worked was, you know, people would be coming to the temple from all over the place. Remember, the temple is in Jerusalem. There's only one temple. Don't get that confused. There's only one temple and it's in Jerusalem. But, you know, not everybody lives in Jerusalem. So people will be coming from Lebanon even. Galilee, of course, you know, um, Edom, they'd be coming from even maybe as far down as perhaps even parts of Africa and Egypt because Jews had also spread out throughout all those regions. And so as people would come from various regions, and by the way, even within Israel, there were different regions with different kinds of money because there were regional governors, okay? So someone would have to change that money at the temple into temple currency because you needed to buy an animal for sacrifice at the temple. And you know those priests, they always would find something wrong with your animal that made you need to um, buy one of their animals. So the language of Matthew 25 and 27, chapter 25, 27, to the bankers would seem to indicate the recognition of lending tables or exchange tables for profit. So the word for bank that's being used here actually is from the word bench. These are tables. These are counters. These are money changing tables, probably like the tables that Jesus once turned over. Um, and so he's basically saying, even though lending was not the normal way of doing things and making a profit in the place of this parable, there were ways. Lending tables, um, lending to foreigners. Um, and the word in the NIV and in most Bibles, they put as um, bankers. But basically what the master is actually saying is, look, 
you should have at least lent and borrowed my money that you could have gained a profit from it. But you didn't even do that. The one thing that we also want to notice that sometimes we miss is that we are never told how the one with the five turned them into ten or how the one with the two turned them into four. We're just told that they went and invested them, but we're not told what they did. We're not told how they did it. Evidently, it wasn't the banking or money tables or lending systems because that's what the master says the guy with the one should have done. He says that's the least you could have done, implying that, you know, the ones who got more from their investment did something smarter even than that. And again, this brings us back to the same point. The purpose of this parable is not about spiritual gifts. It's actually about money. Money is something the Bible talks about more often than not. But the overall purpose is about more than money. It's about wealth, but it's about more than wealth. It's about the things that we hold dearest to us. And let's face it, the things in our wallet, if there are things in our wallet, normally are things we hold dear to us. Will we trust it against the master's character? And all of that is going to have to do with the way we perceive the master. The first two perceived him well. The last one did not. The first two thought, listen, if we mess it up, we know our master is loving and gentle and kind. They don't say that, but they show it by the actions. The last guy, by contrast, shows it by both his actions and his words. I knew you were a hard man. I knew you would treat me unfair. So what should the master say to him? Matthew 25, verse 28. So take the bag of gold from him, the one with the one, and give it to the one who has ten bags. <laughs> so you didn't trust me. You didn't do anything with your money. You just chose to be afraid of me. And so I'm going to show you what I'm going to do and take it from you. And I'm going to give it to the one who has 10. For those of you at home, keep in track. That means the one servant has now 11 bags. The second servant has still four bags. But the last servant has none. And in verse 29... Jesus brilliantly brings this point home when he says, For whoever has will be given more. 
day will have an abundance. But whoever does not have even what they have will be taken from them and throw this worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and the gnashing of teeth. And maybe you read the end of this parable and you wonder why was the master so hard on that last servant? Yes, he was lazy. Yes, he was wicked. But at least he brought back the master's money. Well, here's the thing. When it comes to money, (laughs) God doesn't give us money or take money from us because he needs the money. He does it for our spiritual development, right? This is why we give tithe and offering to churches. Not because God needed our money. It's because we needed to learn to have some sort of spiritual interaction with God. But this isn't even about giving money. Few things, particularly at the end of the world, when things are not always stable, Few things show where your heart is than your gold bags. And although it wasn't about greed for this last servant, his fear of losing God's money or the Lord's money or the master's money the character in the parable that represents God, his fear disclosed to us as readers or listeners his view of God being harsh and wicked and difficult and unfair. You see, the use of the money bags was only to bring out the truth of his heart. And so here we are studying about the eschatology of Jesus, the last end of the world scenario that Jesus um, paints. And Jesus shows that what becomes the most important is not your abilities, not your gifts, not your wealth, although apparently he will reward it, but the way you view God and the way you view the second coming. Are you viewing God? Are you viewing 
the return of Jesus. As if when he returns, he's going to be a hard master. The kind of master who reaps where he did not scatter. Is your view of the coming Messiah, the coming King, the second advent of a mean, harsh God who is coming to see your mistakes, see your errors, and see if you have lost anything he's given you? Or is your attitude towards the coming Messiah, the coming King, the return of Jesus Christ to this world that we may meet him in the air? Is your view of that as a loving, redeeming, generous God, the kind of God that would be so thrilled with your 10 bags of gold, he would give you another bag of gold and up you to 11, and then not only up you to 11, but then be like, come on into my kingdom where all wealth is limitless, and you can just come in and have as much as you want, enter into the joy of your Lord. And then, you know, he does the same thing with the guy with two bags up to four, and he's like, yeah, come on in, the whole kingdom's yours now. Right? This is what I'm trying to say to you. Your attitude about the character and the integrity and the way that God conducts himself in the judgment at the end of the world is paramount to if you will be faithful with what he has given you as we rush to the end of the world. Some people are only worried about being ready about when Jesus returns. Some people are only worried about if they're going to get in when Jesus returns. Some people are only worried about are they going to have something to give the Lord that he gave them to be able to return back to him enough that they are too afraid to take a risk with now. We need to be like the man with five who became the man with not ten, but eleven. We need to be like the man with two who became the man with four. Here's the thing. In these last moments, as the earth is coming to an end, and as, you know, again, we are talking and I don't know where you are and you don't know where I am and I'm in this office and I talk into this mic and you're listening in these headphones that you have or you're listening on some smart speaker or whatever your deal is wherever you are any place in this world here's the thing whatever you have whatever's in your hands whatever God has given you whatever your influence whatever your skills what, what, what whatever your resources like financial physical whatever your all of those things the fact that Jesus is going to return are you willing to take a risk to advance his kingdom because literally, that's what the servant with five bags of gold did. He decided he wanted 
to advance his Lord's kingdom. And he did. 10 and 11. And the guy with two bags of gold said, I want to take it all. I want to risk it all. I want to throw it into the air. I want to, you know, do what I need to do with it. But I just want to take it and advance God's kingdom. And then there was the man with the one bag. And he said, I have no interest of investing in God's kingdom if I don't get in. So rather than risk these gold that the master gave me to help other people get into the kingdom and to make his kingdom larger, I'm just going to hide it. And as long as it's enough to get me in, it's good enough. He gets left out. As we wait for the Lord's return, my question to you is are you going to be like the man with five, two, or one? Eleven. or none it's all about how you trust Jesus it's all about how you believe Jesus rewards you when you take a risk for his kingdom it's all about do you believe he's harsh and difficult and examining, looking for things and profits from where he didn't invest. Do you think he's gracious, good, and loving? And is worth at the end of the world taking all you have and expanding his to a podcast by Pastor Vinny McIsaac from simplyvinny.com. Stop by our website, check out our blogs, like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, all that kind of jazzy promotional stuff. But most important, let's keep growing together in Jesus Christ all the more as we see the day of his return approaching. See you at the next podcast. God bless.